Well, good evening. It is an honor to be with you all. Um, you know, you, you all live up to your name of Winterpeg, but uh, it's nice out. Uh, okay. Uh, anyway, well, look, it, it, it is a delight and honor to be with you all. Let me take just a quick moment. I had an opportunity last night to uh, spend some time with the leadership, get to know one another a little bit. But for those of you that I've, I've not met, um, my name is Russ. My wife, Kim, and I have been married. Coming up on May 5th will be 35 years that we've been married, which is uh, wonderful. I, I was joking with the leaders last night, I think. Um, Kim has heard God's audible voice on a few occasions. I never have. But twice when we were in Bible college in Missouri, uh, back in the early 80s, when we first started dating and and everything else, uh, Kim broke up with me two different times. Go figure, right? God had to speak to her audibly twice that she had to marry me. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. She had to marry me, so pray for Kim. But uh, anyway, so it's been nearly 35 years that we've been married, and we graduated from Bible College in 1986 and began traveling. So we're coming up on May the 1st, 33 years on the road. And God has been gracious to us. God has allowed us to go to six continents. The only continent we haven't been to is Antarctica. How many penguins need a prophecy, right? But uh, we have an opportunity to six continents, 40-some nations. And, and uh, it's been wonderful to watch what God is doing. And for 17 years, it was just Kim and I. Uh, we traveled and ministered. In um, 1995, we got uh, the medical news of why we've not been able to have children. Uh, Kim had had some genetic defects in her body that precluded her getting pregnant. And so the doctors sat down and talked to us, and they said, look, we know you want a child. We know you've been trying, but you need to get over this notion that you're going to have a child. But what they didn't know is that God had already spoken the promise of God. And how many of you are thankful for doctors, medicine, and all that they can give, and we honor that? But our faith is not in what doctors tell us, but in the report of the Lord. In 1989, we were in a Spirit-filled Baptist church. I don't know if there's any Bapticostals here. But uh, a Spirit-filled Baptist church, and the audible voice of the Lord came to Kim and said, I will make you a Hannah. In 1990, she had a visitation from the Lord, and in this visitation, she saw a young woman ministering in the power of God, the dead being raised, uh, demons being driven out, and just the glory of God manifest. And in this experience, Kim asked the Lord, who's Kim, uh, Kim and, and um, the Lord were standing on the sidelines watching. And Kim asked the Lord, who is this? And, and Jesus spoke to her and said, this is your daughter, and her name is Shekinah, for my glory will be on her. So we, we declared around the world for a decade that we were going to have a child, a daughter named Shekinah. Uh, we had a little apartment in Springfield, Missouri, and we had a little faith wall in our, our second bedroom. And, you know, it was painted pink and little girl things and, and Shekinah's name on, on the board. But we, we kept believing and, and, and declaring the word of the Lord. Well, in early 2001, I was in Karachi, Pakistan, and we were working with our, our apostolic church in Virginia. We were training uh, 1,500 leaders to adopt and reach out to the 58 unreached people groups in Pakistan to reach them with the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Kim was not on that trip. We thought it was just because of the lack of finances for her to be with me. But what we found out is this. Kim had a doctor's appointment, just a checkup, see how everything was going. And the, uh, the, the doctor sat her down and said, Mrs. Klein, your records say it's impossible, but you were pregnant. So uh, it was September 11, 2001, and we were preaching in Vancouver, British Columbia. And so uh, we were staying at a, at a hotel near the airport, and I was out jogging. Yes, I had jogged. <laughs> uh, and so I was out jogging, and I noticed that there were no planes flying. I got, it was early in the morning. I got back to the room, and Kim was sitting on sitting on the bed with the TV on, crying as we watched my nation come into their attack. And, um, but what was going on was Kim was more than eight months pregnant. And we got stuck in Vancouver because, you know, they, don't, they, they grounded everything. And do you know that airlines have the right to refuse a pregnant woman to fly if they're afraid she might give birth? So the church in Vancouver was taking bets on whether Shekinah would be a Canadian. Well, we made it back home, 
And uh, so Shekinah was born in, in October 2001, 17 years old now. And, and so we believe this, that God is raising up children. And, and young people, that God's filling with the power of the Spirit. And we, we pray that God would allow her, like Samuel, to be raised in the presence of the Lord. And so Kim and I, because we're a team in ministry, Kim is strongly prophetic. She's, she's stronger in word of knowledge. She's a, a seer prophet herself, does women's conferences, done several in Canada, actually. Um, but uh, so we would have Shekinah with us, and she'd be an infant, and we'd have her with us in the altars, and we're praying, we're prophesying, ministering the things of the Spirit of God, and she'd start crying. She was colicky. Anybody know what that was? That was, uh, I wanted to cast that out. But anyway, uh, she was colicky, and so, you know, she'd scream, and we'd just stick a bottle in her and keep prophesying. And, you know, so as a little girl, she would, you know, as a little, as a little infant, she'd copy mom and dad and stretch her hands out towards people, and and, and so a, a few years later, she was five years old, and we were in Saskatchewan. Uh, Canada has figured a lot into Shekinah. It really has. So we were in Saskatchewan at a camp called the Wilderness Family Camp that came because years ago you got me on, it's a new day here in Winnipeg, and they saw me on there and invited us to come. So we were at a Wilderness Family Camp, and uh, it was wilderness. We had our toilet with us <laughs> and had to go dump it. Anyway. Uh, TMI, right? Too much information. So we're, we're, we're doing a healing meeting. We're praying for the sick. She kind of is right there with us. And, you know, there's a toddler. She'd stretch her hands out, lay hands on people. But how many of you can imagine with a toddler laying hands on people on the height of a toddler, you have to be careful about them laying hands. <laughs> Some of you will catch that later. Uh, but, uh, you know, they're, they're anyway. Um, so we're, we're, we're praying for the sick. And we look down, and, and she kind of is not there. She had taken off under the tent we were preaching under, started laying hands on people out sitting down under the tent. Three people came up to us afterwards and said they were instantly healed when this little five-year-old laid hands on them. Then jump forward a couple years, and we were back in Canada. She kind of was seven years old, and God gave her her first prophetic word. And so Shekinah has now been on over 400 airplanes all across U.S., Canada, Australia, Europe, uh, Lord willing, in the next year into Asia, India, Africa uh, with us uh, and prophesying. And can I tell you, she's a normal teenager. She says, like every other word. She wears too much makeup for dad's, you know, taste sometimes and, you know, gets the occasional crush. And, but but um, you know what? God is pouring out a spirit on all flesh including on children. And, and so, uh, Lord willing, one day you'll get a chance to meet Kim and Shekinah. Um, and, and we've known, it's hard to believe, we've known you all for so long, uh, you know, 23 years now. But uh, we, we've had such a wonderful time. And I hope you don't take this wrong because, you know, we're, we're not old enough to be your parents, so we're 10 years older. Um, but we, we have been in, in watching you guys and watching what God's done and, and, you know, staying in touch some and everything else, as well as the reputation you all carry. Because everywhere we go in Canada, it seems like people know who you all are. And, uh, and normally it's, it's a good reputation. You know, it, it is a good reputation. Um, but you know what? We, and, and I say this in the Lord, I, I mean, we're, we're proud of you guys. We're proud of, of, you know, just the stand you've taken over the Lord and the extension of the kingdom of God. And we had such great time. Trev and, and Mel years ago gave us tickets to the water park at West Edmonton Mall. Uh, took us to Columbia Ice Fields, and, and we uh, walked on glaciers and drank glacier water together. And, but uh, it, I, I'm excited for what God's doing here in Winnipeg and at Catch the Fire. And it is an honor to be with you all um, today. And so we're going to jump into what God has laid on my heart. So turn, if you would, if you, if you, you know, want to turn there or, or pull it up on your device. Matthew chapter 3. Um, I, I, uh, I'm 55. I'll be 56 in about, what, 13 days, I guess. And I, I was called into the ministry when I was nine years old. Baptized in the Holy Spirit, called into ministry. I may share a little bit of that story tomorrow morning. And as a 9, 10, 11-year-old child, I was part of an Assembly of God church, uh, and we had a kids' ministry, a uh, small church, just volunteer kids' ministry, and leaders, but they believed that kids could move in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so as children, they were teaching us about moving in the power of the Holy Spirit and laying hands on the sick, praying people through the, the baptism of the Spirit, leading people to Jesus. 
as a 15-year-old, some uh, ex-hippies that got saved out of the hippie Jesus people movement got me on the streets. And so I was in New York, Chicago, L.A., D.C., uh, London, Warsaw, Mardi Gras, Indy 500, wherever it was, standing on the street corner, 10-foot cross, preaching on the streets, training hundreds of people to go out to the streets and, and doing all that kind of stuff. And uh, but as a, as a young man, as a teenager, when I was 17 years old, somebody gave me my first book about the prophetic. I was called to the prophetic at nine, but had no real grid for understanding fivefold ministry and the prophetic. And somebody gave me a book by uh, John, John Sanford. It was called The Elijah Task, the Call of Today's Prophets. And it began a fascination uh, in, my, in my own life with the, the anointing of Elijah. And, and the idea of God raising up a prophetic people that have the audacity to stand in front of the leaders and the government of the land and declare the holiness of God, declare the majesty of God, to have the audacity to mock the very false prophets and systems around us. I mean, think about it. Elijah was not politically correct. He didn't say things to make people happy. He confronted people and their sin, their apathy, their idolatry, and, and had the audacity to, you know, shout to the false prophets, shout louder, maybe your God's on vacation. Or what one, one uh, paraphrase, Living Bible, has Elijah saying, shout louder, maybe your God's sitting on the toilet. <laughs> Guys, uh, your nation and where my nation is heading, you could get arrested for hate speech. We're doing this kind of stuff. But I love the audacity of prophetic anointing and the simple faith of believing God for the manifestation of the glory of God in, in the fire. And so I began to cry out and pray, God, I want that spirit of Elijah to see a whole nation turn to God, the manifestation of God's glory. And then as I studied Elijah, I came, obviously, to John the Baptist, who came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And while he was under the old covenant, he was a transitional prophet into a new age, a new season, a new time, a new covenant, the revelation of Jesus. The Old Testament prophets looked forward to when Jesus would come, but John actually brought Jesus onto the scene and introduced him. And so I began studying the life of, of John the Baptist and, and the message he had. And actually it was, it was interesting because um, a young man who was a spiritual son I uh, had a revelation, and, and this is very interesting. Um, a, a young man, African-American guy, is now about 26 years old. I taught at his Bible college when he was 18 years old, and he and another guy who were called to be prophetic uh, ministers and prophets, they came and asked for mentoring and different things. So this young man began traveling with me, went around Europe, went all over, uh, you know, America. And it's very interesting. I am uh, middle-aged, and I'm not, I'm not very dark. <laughs> and, and so here was an 18-year-old African-American guy and a 40-something, 50-year-old white guy traveling around together and, and the word of the Lord coming forth. But unfortunately... My spiritual son believed a lie and is now transgender and has uh, began transition into, uh, you know, trying to take the body to a place that's different than the, uh, the identity God gave him and many other things. And I mean, it's torn my heart out as, as a spiritual father, and yet I haven't taken my heart from him. But you know what? God gave him revelation that I still, uh, you know, I, I still share. Um, and he was reading one time about John the Baptist. You remember when Jesus was speaking to the crowds about John the Baptist? And he said, what did you go into the desert to see? Did you go to see or hear a prophet? And he said, yes, but I tell you more than a prophet. And Eric began asking the Lord, inquiring of the Lord, what does that mean more than a prophet? And here's what he felt the Lord said to him. A prophet announces what's going to come one day, but John the Baptist didn't just say Jesus is coming he said, and here he is. You see, part of what we're used to in prophetic ministry is declaring what one day is going to happen. One day healing's coming. One day revival's coming. One day reformation is coming. But more than a prophet says not only is it coming, but he's right here now. That means we don't just go into culture and prophesy about life and freedom in Jesus. We bring his love and his power right with us and manifest Jesus around us. And so I, I love the, the message and the life of John the Baptist, the spirit and power of Elijah. And John had one key uh, message, and that's found in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. In the, uh, the King James, it says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Now, I don't know all your different backgrounds. My wife, Kim, is fourth-generation Pentecostal. Um, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of a spiritual mutt. I was Baptist, Church of the Brethren, Catholic, Charismatic, street preacher, Assembly of God, was, you know, and then prophetic and, you know, renewal, all this other stuff. And so, you know, but, but we were in the Pentecostal church world. And so to us, repentance meant that we had a crying good time at the altars. Repentance meant that we had a bunch of wadded up snot rags around the altar to prove that we'd repented. But here's what I found. We can cry without changing. We can have an, we can have an emotional uh, experience with the Lord without any transformation of heart. And I found that I can cry with the best of you. See, Kim and Shekinah would put on a chick flick. You know what chick flicks are, right? 55 minutes of something sad so you can cry a lot, and at the end something finally good happens. You know, and they'll put on a chick flick. Um, and I'll do, the, you know, I'll do the man thing. I don't want to watch that. Five minutes later, I'm sitting there. Oh, yeah. See, I found I can cry without changing. What happens sometimes in our spirit-filled churches because we believe that God has emotion, God gave us emotion, and it's okay to let our emotion be touched by the Spirit of God. But if we're not careful, we rely on an emotional release as proof that something has changed in our heart and our life. And, and repentance is more than just feeling bad or having an emotion. One uh, transliteration of, or, or uh, a rewording, if you will, Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, puts it this way. Change your attitudes and actions, for an invasion of the Spirit is imminent. See, the Holy Spirit is targeted. Our cities, our families, our places of influence for an invasion from heaven. But I think like Pastor was saying earlier, Trevor, I don't know what they call you around here. Pastor, Apostle, T-Dog, okay. Wonderful. You young whippersnappers, come on. Is You were talking about the glory of God. And, and the same thing with the invasion of the Spirit of God. We are not praying for the invasion of the Spirit of God to come from heaven to earth. He already gave His Word. He gave His Son. He gave His Spirit. God has already put the invasion power of His Spirit within us. I think it was Charles Finney great revivalist in American history, he said God is a pent-up revival. We don't have to convince God to send revival or, or the power of the Spirit through us. He's waiting for us to stir up the gifts of God in our life, stir up the passions of God, and begin to go forward. So there's this whole uh, concept of repent or change for his invasion of the Spirit that is imminent. And the way the Holy Spirit began speaking to me is this. Russ, the church needs to repent or change. But I want to go beyond the typical things. So we, could, we could truthfully talk about the fact that every sin that's happening in culture, much of the reason we don't have the authority to see it overcome is the church has made allowance for areas of these things in our own lives. That's not what I want to talk about tonight. I believe we need to repent for the way we do church. You see, the Western church has made an audience not an army. And many times the better the performance, the better the pre-show, the more emotional the presentation, the bigger the audience. God is not interested in putting on a show. God is not interested in putting a stamp of approval on your show or my show that we call church and ministry. God has not called you to be impressed with people up here. I was sharing, I think, with the leaders last night. Um, I think it was Rick Joyner, uh, prophetic minister in, in North Carolina. He details an experience he had with the Lord one time. He was caught up uh, to the heavenly realm, and God spoke to him and said this, heaven is not impressed with your anointing. Now, how many of you would like that prophecy tonight? You see, 
the anointings and giftings of God are given without repentance. In other words, God gives gifts not because he, uh, because we've earned it, but because he loves people and wants to flow through us to touch other people's lives. And so the way I put it is this. In Scripture, God spoke to Balaam through a donkey. And so my contention is if God speaks through you, it might be because you're the closest donkey around. Don't be impressed with gifting. What impresses God is a heart of humility and obedience and love and all these other things. And so the, the idea of putting on a show, and this is where I believe much of the Western church has compromised trying to figure out how to get rear ends in our seats by who can put on the best show. Now, please understand, I don't believe we need to be churchy. I don't need to be, believe we need to be religious and not relevant to the culture around us. But I do believe that Jesus is the most relevant of all. And he did not compromise truth in the name of relevance. So anyway, um, there is a shift, there is a change that is going on, and that is bringing the church to a place of every member being equipped and going out because God wants us to occupy until he comes. I think, is it in Luke where it says that? But it, to occupy until he comes. The word occupy doesn't mean just take up space. How many of you take up more space than you like to? <laughs> It's not about taking up space. The word occupy in the Greek is a military term that means to go in the name of a king and a kingdom and occupy or take over and possess the, the, the assignment to which you've been sent. And so God is preparing a people that are going to go out with his heart and his power to see the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord in Christ. And so the idea is that repentance or change must be there if we're going to see uh, the, the church bring the invasion of the Spirit of God around us. Now, Isaiah chapter 43, familiar scripture to many of us. God says this. Um, uh, how, how does it put it? It says, the old has passed away. Uh, everything is changing. I'm doing something new. Don't weep over the past. Don't mourn over the past. God says, I'm doing something new. But don't you see it? It's springing up. Don't you perceive what's going on? And Isaiah chapter 42, jump back at one chapter, and it says a similar thing, but then it says, there is no one as blind as my messenger. You know, I found that many times the church are the last ones to get a clue. And so we follow the, the, uh, the, the, the dictates of culture, but according to Deuteronomy 28, we're the head and not the tail, which means... And I don't think that has a whole lot to do with what kind of car you drive or house you live in or big, how big your bank account is. Being the head means that we lead, we don't follow. We don't lead or follow the dictates of what culture demands. We lead the way. I believe the most innovative uh, uh, discoveries in science and medicine and business and artistic things ought to come out of the people of God. And the world ought to be looking at the church. In fact, here's one of the things I'm praying for, that God put so much trustworthiness in the church, even with finances, that instead of the church going to the government for a handout, the government comes to the church. That would be the solution to many of the governmental problems where people are relying on the government to bail them out. The church ought to be the ones that are front, the front line on all of this. But something's got to shift and change if we're going to get there. Let, let me ask you something. How many of you have ever heard a phenomenal sermon? How many? I mean, every Sunday, right? Every Sunday. <laughs> Who preached last Sunday? Oh, okay. I thought maybe Mel did. So, Have you ever been in a, in a worship service? I mean, I, I love the worship. Have you ever been in a worship service where it feels like I, I, from, from the get-go, you're just caught up into the heavenly realm? And I mean, an hour or two can pass, and it feels like minutes. Have you ever heard a thrilling prophecy? I mean, somebody's prophesying, it's like you, you, you could just take the world on by yourself, you and God. Have you ever seen a magnificent building, a church building? I, the, 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 the Apostolic Church we were a part of for 10 years in Virginia, I'm, and I mean, we had, we, the, the last building project was $15 million, and that wasn't even a new sanctuary. I mean, just I, these magnificent, beautiful buildings that sometimes God will, will put in their hands. But let me ask you something. If amazing sermons, thrilling prophecies, awesome worship, magnificent buildings, if these were going to change culture, shouldn't it have happened already? What, what do we need? Do we just need better preaching, bigger buildings, 
better worship. Look, I'm not against these things. God will do all of that. Yeah, you need a building. We're believe it. But but please hear what I'm saying. It's not about that. Have you ever heard the the definition of insanity? Some say it was Albert Einstein, whoever it was. But the definition of insanity, they say, whoever they is, is to continue doing things the way you've always done them and expect different results. You see, the church thinks that if we just continue doing things the way we've done them for the last five years, 20 years, 50 years, that something's going to change. Now, we understand this. God doesn't change, does he? His word doesn't change. But the methodology and the flow and the manifestation of how God uh, works does shift and change. God doesn't change, but he does move. And he's asking us to move along with him. And so what I believe is this, that God is about to bring a radical transitional shift to the church. And I don't believe it's just going to be a new level. You know, we pray, God, a new level of your glory, new level of your anointing, new level of love, and all that's good. And then we have our little catchphrases, you know, with new levels come new devils. And then, you know, we get everybody all excited about warfare. Here's the way the Lord, and, and I'm not against that stuff. I, I, sometimes I think, I, th- I think personally it can get trite sometimes. You know, back in the 90s when we first started traveling in the prophetic and a lot of the big-name prophets back then were our mentors and this and that. And I thought I had to have a rhyming prophetic word every year. You know, come alive in 95 and, you know, uh, whatever. Go to the heavens in 97 and open gate in 98. And, and, uh, and look, I, and I'm not saying there's not value sometimes of that, but honestly, the prophetic movement, in my opinion, has become trite and immature and childish. I've been around this thing for a long time, and I'm not trying to throw stones, but it's time to come to maturity and all of this. One of our mentors was a guy named Bob Jones, and I and, uh, traveled around uh, all over the U.S. with Bob. And, and back, uh, back then, he would have what he called the shepherd's rod prophecy. Um, it was uh, Day of Atonement every year, the audible voice of the Lord, shepherd's rod. You know, uh, it was a, a, a test, if you will, for the church to come through the sheep uh, to go to a new level in the Lord. And what, what amazed me is this. When Bob started doing that, every prophet and their brother had to get a shepherd's rod prophecy too. And Chuck Pierce came out with the whole Hebrew year thing a few years ago, and now every prophet sticks on Hebrew year and Hebrew month. And Look, learn from what's out there, but don't be a copy. Be an original. Is that okay? Um, something is, is, is shifting. And we're going to, yes, new levels. But the way the Lord put it in me is it's going to be a new dimension. I don't know if you've ever watched, you know, sci-fi things that are all, but, but uh, there was an old TV show, um, uh, uh, Star Trek, and they had warp speed. I mean, excuse me, they had uh, impulse speed, which is normal speed. Quarter impulse, half impulse, full impulse. And that's just going normal speed and going a little faster. But then they had warp speed, which was all of a sudden everything around changed. Guys, I believe every, every soul is vital. Everything we do for the Lord is, 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 is valuable in the kingdom of God. Every person we love in the name of Jesus is valuable. But I believe God wants to raise our vision to believe more than, than, than just one more person saved or one more person healed, but of cities and nations. And that's a d- dimension that we talk about where we have not yet entered into. So I believe there's a dimensional shift that God is bringing to the church and offering to us. And so what does that look like? How do, we, how do we get there? Kim has a lot of dreams from God. I rarely have dreams from the Lord, but she rarely understands the dreams, and typically God gives me the interpretation. And so back some time ago, she had a dream, and her and I were driving along in a beat-up old station wagon. And it was, you know, barely getting along, was, you know, nearly breaking down. And, and it drove us up to a six-story McDonald's. We get out of our station wagon, we go into the McDonald's, and there's a church service going on in every room in the McDonald's. All sorts of different kinds of church services. But we felt an oppression. We wanted to escape. So we ran out of the McDonald's to where we'd parked the station wagon, but our vehicle had disappeared. And we were running around, we were running around an empty parking lot trying to find our vehicle. And then suddenly, in the distance, we spotted a brand-new, bright red convertible sports car. And I guess we had enough faith teaching in us. We claimed it. We knew that was our car. 
And we jumped in the car and sped off over a bridge you couldn't see the end of. So Kim woke up from the dream and thought it was a pizza dream, a McDonald's dream. Um, and, and I said, no, God's saying something here. Many of you know in, in dreams, visions, vehicles represent many times your vehicle or method of ministry. A station wagon, what would that might symbolize? A station wagon a generation ago was a relevant car. It was a family car, and it was relevant. You had a car big enough for your whole family. The family, the local family, is the local church. We believe this speaks to the methodology and expression of the local church. But in this dream and in our culture, the station wagon was not relevant. It was a generation old. It represents the way we did things in the past. God had anointed it for the past, but it was not relevant for today. And you know where yesterday's anointing took us? Yesterday's anointing took us to a six-story McDonald's. What do you think McDonald's might represent? Fast food Christianity. I want it quick. I want it cheap. I want a value menu. And I don't care if it's good for me as long as it tastes good for the moment. Western Christianity. Six store, before I get to that, um, McDonald's. You know what we know about uh, at McDonald's? We've eaten, at, we've eaten at McDonald's all over the world. And except for India, where they don't eat beef, they pray to it. Um, but, you know, what we notice is most McDonald's are just franchises. They're cheap carbon copies of what is happening somewhere else. Do you know in 33 years of traveling on six continents, most churches are nothing but a carbon copy of what somebody else got a revelation of? You know what? Thank God for the local church, but not every local church is called to meet every need in the city. How many of you individually know you can't do everything, but you can do something? As a local church, it's the same thing. There's no local church that's called to be the entire answer by themselves for the city. And so don't try to copy everybody else's program. If somebody comes to your church and they have a need that your church is not equipped to meet but the church down the street is, have enough kingdom mentality to send them to that church. Them and their kids and their tithe. You see, that's, that's where uh, we, we've got to quit being franchises. We've got to be an original. I think it was Winston Churchill, uh, leader of the England during World War II. He said this, when the eagles are silent the parrots begin to jabber. Even in the prophetic, if you pay attention and watch people's prophetic posts, you can tell who they follow. Everybody's just saying the same thing because it's what's popular and gets a crowd and gets the people, the eyeballs on their, their Internet site. See, God wants to do more than just say the same thing over and over. He wants to bring the fullness of the revelation of Jesus, and each one of us have a part and have part of that revelation. So, uh, franchises, McDonald's, fast food, six stories. Six is the number of what in Scripture? Number of man. Most churches have been built by man, for man, and about man. How many of you want nothing to do with that kind of system? Here's where a lot of leaders are. We have run away from dead religion, but the way we used to do things, yesterday's vehicle, it's missing. In other words, we're trying to find the something new, but what we did in the past is not working any longer. Now, understand, prayer works, the word works. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But notice in this dream, God did not ask Kim and I what kind of vehicle we want. You see, when I was 23 years old and got out of Bible college, I had my B.A. in Bible. Somebody told me it was my bad attitude in Bible. I was a know-it-all preacher. Let me ask, how many of you ever met a know-it-all? How many of you ever been a know-it-all? You see, our first prophetic conference we ever went to in 1987, uh, God confronted me, not through a prophet, but by his spirit directly to me. And he said this to me. He said, Russ, I don't care about your opinion. Can I tell you, that shocked me. I was like, God, I'm a Bible college graduate. I am ordained with the assemblies of God. The Lord said, big deal. 
Can I, can I give you a word? God doesn't care about your opinion. God doesn't care about your taste. He's not asking for your culture. He's not asking for what kind of music you like. He's not asking what kind of preaching you like. He's not asking whether you uh, like these kind of changes. God is not interested in your opinion, but your obedience. And so we've got to come away from trying to use our opinions to set the, the, the tone of the church and hear what God's saying. And so in the dream, God provided the new vehicle. Catch what this is. It is a brand new, bright red convertible sports car. How many of you think that's relevant? It's fast. It's fiery. It's a convertible, no blind spots. You could go on and on with the analogies. And what is the bridge we take off over? A bridge is transition to another dimension, another level, another season. But we don't know yet fully what it looks like. You see, we are in a place of constant transition and change to become more like Jesus and, and then more effectively make Jesus known. And so when John the Baptist begins talking about repent or change or an invasion of the Spirit is imminent, then I believe we've got, it is mandated upon us to ask God what needs to change. What do we need to do differently? Because we are good, especially in the, you know, spirit-filled, whatever word you want to use for describing who we are, we think that we are um, the, the most cutting edge. I don't see how to say this. I, I don't know if you've ever studied revival history. You know, we, we've, uh, you know, for years, we got around the, the Kansas City prophets and Bill Hammond and Rick Joyner and then uh, Rodney Howard Brown and Benny Hinn and Toronto and Pensacola and, you know, and, and Bethel and, and you know, all, all these things. And we've received wonderful, wonderful things from all of these things. Um, but here's what I found. Many times our churches and our people, they get touched by these moves. We become arrogant thinking that somehow we've got the revelation, we've got the touch, we've got the new move, and so we get stuck and religious in our ways of doing things. In old-time Pentecost, um, as I studied revival history back during the, uh, the, the 90s, in old-time Pentecost, they had manifestations too, you know, like, you know like, like Toronto, you know, back there before service, somebody was laughing, and over here somebody was doing something else, and, you know, wonderful, you know, great, that's, that's, that's awesome. And I, I think, you know, go for it, Lord. Um, but do you know, in old time Pentecost, they had these things too, but they called them uh, exercises. They called it the, uh, the laughing exercise. They called it the falling exercise in old time Pentecost. And one of, the, uh, one of the manifestations of the Spirit was what was called shouting your hair down. Anybody know what that was? You see, old time Pentecostal women were told they weren't allowed to cut their hair, you know, legalism. And so they had long hair. But it became a burden, so they would roll the hair up, you know, bun it up, pin it there. But when the Holy Ghost was moving, they'd start shouting and dancing and jumping so much that the pins fell out of the hair and their long hair fell down. And then when that happened, that was the sign the Holy Ghost was there, so they started swinging their hair around. That was a manifestation of the Holy Spirit in old-time Pentecostal revival. And you thought Toronto was strange. <laughs> Guys, do you know that what happened is people kept putting on that, that act. They kept going through that motion even when God wasn't there. And what was a move of the Spirit became dead religion and tradition that held the church back. You remember when um, Israel was set free out of Egypt? Now, Egypt typically symbolizes what when we preach on it? What does Egypt symbolize? Come on, guys, you know this. Chester and Betsy probably taught this. They're good friends of ours. Um, bondage, religion, the world, the flesh, the devil. Do you remember how Israel ended up in Egypt in the first place? Oh, okay, well famine. You see, there was famine in Israel. There was food in Egypt. I want you to see this. Egypt started out as blessing, but became bondage. See, if we don't continue to move with God, yesterday's blessing becomes today's bondage. 
That means we don't get stuck in a certain manifestation or way. We follow him. Obviously, based on his word, by the spirit of God and leadership and counts on all those other things. So God is moving. And I believe one of the things that God is doing in, in bringing the church to a, a new season is God is restoring the original foundations of the church. I'm not going to take a long time to, to teach on quote-unquote fivefold ministry and, and all these other things. You all believe in that. You're moving you know, in those directions and have that DNA, and we appreciate that. But what, what I, what I want to say is this. God is restoring the New Testament apostolic foundations of the church. That he's taking us back to those initial foundational principles that caused the early church to turn the then known world upside down. I mean, think about it. 120 uh, spiritual believers turned the then known world upside down. And can I tell you, it doesn't take a massive mega church, bless them, but it takes people filled with the Spirit of God, moving in the Spirit of God, following his direction. So, what was it? That was uh, uh, indicative. What marked the New Testament apostolic church? Four things we're going to look at. And I'm, again, I'm not going to try to uh, prolong these needlessly. But I, I want us to see where God's taking us, I believe, as we move into the future in the Lord. The first thing is I want to look at apostolic or New Testament passion. You see, Paul made a statement, and he said, everything... Everything to me is a loss compared to knowing Christ. There's something about being in love. Um, our early days in the prophetic were around Kansas City and what's now called IHOP, you know, uh, Mike Bickle and some of them. And I remember, you know, Mike Bickle and a lot of those people, they used to talk about and still do, I think, uh, Jesus being our magnificent obsession. You see, we, uh, we started coming up to Canada in 1999, and we found that Canadians are um, passionate about certain things. Tim Hortons? Um, I mean, come on. Krispy Kreme doesn't make it in Canada? Oh, come on. But, you know, Tim Hortons and uh, hockey? You know, it's fine to have fun and enjoy and be passionate about other things, but there needs to be one overriding passion. And that's not even the move of God and revival, though that is part of the passion. It's the Son of God. It's Jesus. We love Him because He first loved us. And I, I remember a prayer I learned in Kansas City years ago. It was this, Lord, if you'll draw me, I'll run after you. You see, because I know, I know Russ Klein. I know that I want to serve God with all my heart, but sometimes, you were saying this, you don't feel it. Sometimes you may not feel the passion. And yet I say, Lord, if you'll draw me, if you'll romance me, if you'll draw me. I remember back in the uh, renewal days in 94, 95 in Toronto, I think it was David Ruiz or whoever was, was doing the worship, we will dance on streets that are golden. Remember that? The glorious bride and the great son of man. And I remember, and I'm not a great dancer at all, but I remember getting out there in the middle of, the, of that airport church over there and just act like I was dancing with the Lord. I mean, the passion the, of the Lord drawing me in. And as, as his passion drew me, it, it, the, the, the passion in my heart burned out. I mean, you know, not burned out in a wrong way. It, it flamed away, uh, so, so the Lord drew me. You know, uh, Song of Solomon says, love burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. I had a, uh, a friend in Bible college from Puerto Rico, and he was an evangelist. Back in the 80s, we called him Rico Suave. And he had a red sports car. He had the pointy shoes. He had the thin tie. And, I mean, he was, he was, he was cool. And he had a girlfriend in Florida, a girlfriend in Chile, and a girlfriend in Puerto Rico. And I heard him on the phone with a girlfriend one time. And he was, he was getting all Latin. All right? He was like, oh, baby, you light my fire. I mean, it sounded like junior high school to me. But still, the man was passionate. There is a passion that needs to burn in our heart. Have you, ever, have you ever seen a couple out in public that are so ooey-gooey, romantic, it's embarrassing? I'm sure none of you are like that. 
Because it's one thing to come here, and I know, you know, you can take the analogies, and I'm not going to, you know, spell it all out for you. Obviously, there are dimensions of passion that are not for public display. But, guys, we are not to hide our passion for Jesus in a worship service in a building. People need to see that we're in love. Have you ever heard the phrase, trophy wife? You know, when the man marries up and he wants to show everybody he was married up. Can I tell you something? Now, while, while God didn't marry up, <laughs> you're, you're his trophy bride. Do you get that? Jesus wants to show you off to the world because he loves you. And that, therefore, is going to draw people because they see that we love him. And so the passion of the Lord drew them, and that was the motivation behind them. But it wasn't just loving Jesus, for Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Holiness is not out of God, what do I have to give up so I don't go to hell? Holiness is what can I get rid of so I can become more like my love? And then it's loving people as he loves. It's seeing people through his eyes. We were with uh, Gary and Rhonda Gray, mutual friends of ours, pastors in Florida. And uh, he asked me to go on a hospital visitation with him. Now, as a traveling minister, we, we you know, don't do a, get to do a lot of hospital visitation and things like that. But um, it, it was actually a woman that was, that was in a home care. She uh, was eaten up with cancer. Uh, she'd been given 24 hours to live. Now, guys, how many of you know that our Jesus is a healer? And we've seen God raise people up from, from cancer numerous times, everything else. But in this particular incident um, uh, and circumstance, there wasn't a sense that she was going to uh, be restored on this side of eternity, but on the other side of eternity. And so the pastor and I go, and we're, we're in their home, and her husband of 50-plus years is sitting next to the, the hospital bed in their house. And the woman looks like she's 24 hours from death. I mean, sunken, you know, face, uh, uh, you know, uh, ashen skin, greasy hair, tubes, and, and all the other stuff. But here's what impacted me. Her husband was sitting next to her, holding her hand. And with the other hand, he was gently stroking her face. And as one single tear came down the husband's cheek, he said this. He said, look at her with a smile. Look at her. Isn't she the most beautiful woman you've ever seen? You see, that got a hold of me because in the natural, she was not beautiful. But he saw her through eyes of love. Isn't that how we need to see each other? To see past, it doesn't mean we wink at sin, but it means somewhere we see as God sees. It's that kind of love that's going to mark a New Testament church. And then love the lost, love the broken. I was doing street preaching with a, a ministry called Teen Challenge in New York City back several years ago. I wasn't a leader. I was 20-something years old, just part of a team, about 200. And we were, were preaching. We had a stage in, in one of the parks there in uh, uh, the Bronx, I believe it was. And, and so we were preaching. And a demonized woman came to the front. Uh, she began to mock the crucifixion. She splayed herself out like Jesus on the cross and, and just began to get very um, uh, vulgar. And it didn't take a lot of discernment or RTF training even back then uh, to recognize demonic activity. But here's what happened. About 50 of the team gathered around her to cast the demons out of her. And, and they were screaming at the demons, and the woman was, was getting in their face and spitting back and screaming back. And, and again, I'm, you know, I, I, I'd done deliverance ministry a little bit as a teenager and in my early 20s, but, you know, I, again, I wasn't a leader. I was just there in the circle and, you know, praying. And I watched this going on, and nothing was happening. The woman was just as bound and getting vile and violent and, and everything else. And the Holy Spirit stopped me and asked me a question for my, my education. He said, Russ, look at the, the Christians. They hate the devil, but where's their love for the woman? You see, when I was a young preacher, I loved truth, but I didn't like people a whole lot. You see, when we have love for him, his heart will, will invade us. 
So number one, the apostolic New Testament church has passion for the Son of God. Number two, we operate for the purpose of God on planet Earth. Matthew 28, it's called the Great Commission. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me, therefore you go and make disciples of every nation. Now I heard somebody teach it this way. Nations are made up of individuals and institutions. Guys, institutions, governments can't get saved. Businesses can't get saved. People can get saved. But then we not only convert them, bring them to Christ, then we disciple them. That means we get into their lives and we let them get into our lives until Jesus is formed in them. But you can disciple a business. You can disciple a nation. You can disciple a city. You can disciple a government. God can bring the church to a place of influence where we are setting, again, the head and not the tail. We are setting the culture instead of the world and the devil setting the culture. We're called to be salt and light. Light lights the way. Salt is a preservative. The church is called to preserve the values of heaven on earth. And so the purpose of the church on planet earth is to make his name famous. It's to bring glory to God. It is to bring people to Jesus. It is to bring the kingdoms of this world to becoming the kingdoms of our Lord and Christ. Now, we may have different eschatology or end-time theology of how that's all going to play out, and I'm not going to get into that tonight, okay? But what I do believe is until Jesus does come, we occupy. That means we make a difference in the culture around us. And so the church is not here to just enjoy his presence. We are called to go out and invade the culture around us. Ezekiel chapter 37, you know where God sent the prophet? God sent him not to the stadiums. God sent him not to the tabernacle. God did not put a microphone on his hand and in his hand and, and tell him, go get a following and a newsletter. You know where God sent the prophet? He sent him to the graveyard. There is right now in our, our, our culture, there's a generation a prophetic people, they want a platform and a microphone and a website and an offering and a name. But I believe God is looking for prophets and a prophetic people They will go to the graveyards of culture. We're not looking for the easy way. We're not looking for the applause of man. We're looking to go to the hardest places and declare life. And I tell you, God is raising up his church. Jesus is building his church. And I could go on and on and talk about evangelism. I talk about prophetic evangelism. And we see that. Uh, you know, tomorrow I may share some stories about the, 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 you know, God speaking into people's lives, details of their lives. And you know that stuff. You hang around all this move. And, and thank God for that. Power evangelism, where by demonstration of the power of God, uh, you know, people are drawn to the Lord. But one thing the Lord spoke in my heart is that we're about to see presence evangelism. Where the very presence of God draws. Remember when, wasn't it Peter, his shadow fell on the, on the man who was sick? I, I, don't, I, I, can't I cannot necessarily prove this theologically, but I don't believe that was a gift or an anointing. I believe that was the presence, the glory, some might call it. And I believe there's coming not just prophetic and power and program evangelism, but presence evangelism, where the presence of God is so rich and full and thick and deep in our lives that he oozes out of us everywhere we go, and people are drawn. And then God's going to bring forth an excellent spirit upon the church. And, and, and out of excellence, out of revelation, out of wisdom, out of love, God's going to promote us. And even if we are not the head of a government or business, uh, we're going to be the influencer. Now, Kim and I, I told you, we've been married th almost 35 years. And we joke. You know, we don't joke about stealing food from a restaurant. <laughs> but you know what we do? We joke and I say, Kim, I'm the head of this house. And she'll say, well, I'm the neck that turns the head. Can I tell you, you may not be the decision maker in your sphere of influence, but you can be the neck. You can be the influencer of the decision maker. And that's part of how we disciple nations. So there's passion. There's purpose for the Great Commission. Third, pattern. What is the pattern of the New Testament church? I, I'd have to 
pull the reference up. Again, if my tablet comes on, I've been having problems with my tablet app, it won't come on. <laughs> the Bible does talk about this. It says, let each one minister according to the grace and the gift given into their lives. We see the illustration of the body of Christ. See, the pattern is that you're not a spectator, you're a participator. You're not an audience member, you're in the army. And God is preparing. Now, where we live, Hampton, Virginia, uh, it's, it's on the East Coast, Virginia Beach, Norfolk, uh, about two and a half hours south of D.C., right on the coast. And, and where we live, every branch of the military, uh, we have NASA there. So where NASA develops our space uh, program, where they develop space propulsion, that's in Hampton. So our friends, we have friends that are rocket scientists, you know. And so that, that's in our whole area. Uh, you know, we're SEAL Team 6 that took out bin Laden. They're from our area and trained in our area. So we're, you know, big military area and, and all of this. And, and so um, I don't know if you've ever been in the military, but when you enter into the military, you have to go through training. It's called boot camp. And you know when you go to boot camp, the drill instructor, the drill sergeant, he is not necessarily known for being extremely understanding and sweet. He doesn't care if you have a cold. He doesn't care if you did get a lot of sleep last night. He will kick your rear in to get you prepared and ready to do battle. Can I tell you, thank God for pastors that can love us and teachers that can train us. But even in those ministries, and especially as we see apostolic and prophetic release, sometimes their love is going to look like a kick in the pants. Why? Not because they're angry but because they want to see God's fulfillment in your life. And they want to see the church arise and bring glory to Jesus. The pattern is that every one of us are vital to what God wants to do. And can I say it this way? God's given every one of you a vehicle. God's given every one of you a gift. God's given every one of you a mandate and a sphere of influence. But we've got to discover that. We've got to find out what that is so we're not just going through the same motions. In fact, for a lot of us, God's going to shift what we've been doing and our, 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 our um, mentality of what we have. We've limited ourselves. We've limited ourselves based on past gifts. God is wanting to expand us and, and bring fullness into and all these things. A good friend of mine, uh, he helps lead a prayer center in Jerusalem. He said it's like a key that opens the door. You know, the, 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 uh, we want the gate of glory open so the king of glory can come into our city. And a key is put into a gate or a door to open it up. But if you look at a key, it's got a lot of points on the key. And unless every point is in place and functioning, the key will not operate properly. You are a point on the key. You cannot sit back and say, well, let somebody else do it. God wants you to be sharpened and prepared so God's glory can come into the city. Have you ever watched somebody make a key? What do they do? They take a, a blank, you know, a, a piece of metal, and they put it into a grinder. Anybody feel like God's had you in the grinder? It's because he's sharpening you, preparing you to be a point on the key. So there is a, a, a pattern, and that is equipping the entire body to arise. Because I believe this. If I'm doing my job right Many people that sit under my ministry will prophesy more than I do. They'll see more people saved, more people healed. They will get more details in prophecy because it's not about the most gifted being the leader. It's about secure sons and daughters that can raise up sons and daughters who surpass us. And then lastly, again, we could expand each point more. You see the passion, the purpose, the pattern. But ultimately... It's got to be by the power of the Holy Spirit. Zechariah 4, 6, it's not by might. It's not by power, but by my spirit. You see, um, I've been around enough movements and everything else that I know you can build excitement on the sheer force of personality and gifting. See, when I was a, young, a younger preacher, I was a spitting, screaming Pentecostal preacher. All right. I'd run around for an hour and a half. I was told I've got certain limitations here so the camera doesn't lose me. Can't run around too much. The anointing's, you know, the anointing's kind of <laughs> I'm just giving you a hard time. I my my nickname, well it, 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 it when I first started preaching was the little Jimmy Swaggart. Some of you know who that is, some don't. But I, I, I would scream, spit, holler, and everything else. And, and again, I'm not against a particular style. But I used to find myself trying to use force of style to get a move of God. 
some friends of ours um, came to Christ a few years ago, and they, they had been professional hypnotists. Not stage hypnotists, but, you know, hypnotists to, you know, quit smoking and lose weight. Of course, they, they both were overweight. But anyway, um, it was a hypnotism to, to help. And you know what happened? They got saved, and they came into the Spirit-filled church. And after a few services, they said, and they weren't trying to be critical. They were being observational. They said, you know what I've noticed in Spirit-filled churches? The preachers use a lot of hypnotic technique. And again, they weren't trying to be critical, but they were observing that many times, sometimes innocently, sometimes not so much, we will manipulate people's emotions and call it revival. I'm not against emotion. I love it. I laugh, I cry, I shout, dance, you know, the whole bit. I don't dance as much as I used to. <laughs> but, guys, I don't want just another touch. I don't just want another move. I don't just want renewal and revival. God is preparing the church for a reformation of society. And that means that we need something that is so real and so deep that it doesn't take, you know, I, I want the kind of miracles that last after the emotion of the meeting is over and people don't lose their healing. Look, I understand that, yes, it's possible to lose a healing, but I challenge you, find me somebody that Jesus healed in Scripture that lost their healing. We make excuses for the lack of lasting fruit and results. But the power of God released through the apostolic New Testament church will change culture, will bring demonstration of power. Acts, the power of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit. But you will receive dynamite, dunamis, and the Holy Ghost has come upon you. There is an explosion of the Spirit of God waiting to be released out of every life, out of every church. And I believe when that demonstration comes, look, I could regale you with stories and, and everything else, but you've heard testimonies. You've seen testimonies. I believe this, though. God wants to give you a testimony. God wants to give you a story. And let me, let me bring it to a close with a couple of thoughts. My mom one time was in one of our meetings and she heard me preaching, and I was giving stories and testimonies of miracles that God had done. And she came up to me afterwards. She said, Russ, that, that, was, that was amazing. That was awesome. She said, but you know what I noticed? She said, all of your testimonies were 10 years old. She said, that's awesome, but what did God do last week? <laughs> Only a mom and a wife could get away with that, right? It's time we see God take back over his church. It's time we return to New Testament. It's time that we shake ourselves free of yesterday's blessing that's become today's bondage. Our methodologies, our mindsets. Guys, the church in, our, in the Western world has become a high-maintenance, low-impact group. God's looking for people that are disciples. They don't need a caretaker. Look, if you're a baby Christian, you need some taking. How many of you know, when a baby's born, it's going to have dirty diapers. It's going to fall on its padded little rear end while it's trying to learn to walk. And that's okay. And please don't take offense at this if somebody in your family is developmentally disabled. I'm not mocking, it, mocking or making fun. But what I'm saying is this. When you're in the natural, a teenager or an adult, if you still need diapers and everything else, there's something wrong. Can I tell you there's something wrong with a church of people that still needs a babysitter? God is asking us to grow up. And I believe as we mature in the Lord, God's going to entrust to us. I don't remember the fullness of this with, with Carol or not. Years ago, when we were living in Virginia, um, I had a vision. And I saw, um, I saw a, a minister uh, that we were connected with. And they had a little pocket knife. But they were thought it was a sword. And, you know, and they were playing with it, but uh, they, they thought they had more authority than they did. 
And I don't remember the whole story with Carol because somebody told me when I released that that Carol had some kind of a very similar vision or dream or something that she released. But it's about uh, God wanting to put in the hands of the church a mature sword of war. And we're still little kids playing around with our plastic swords. Look, I love that we can, you know, do warfare and call this out and call that and decree and declare and do, you know, I believe in all of that. But can I ask you how many times we have to deal with the same territorial spirit before we get breakthrough? How many times do we have to dig a stake in the ground and do our identification or repentance? And look, again, I'm not against that stuff. But how many years before we actually start to take ground? I think it was uh, Joshua and, and Israel. Uh, God said, how long until you take the land? My brothers and sisters, every church is vital. Every person is vital. But each person has a unique destiny, purpose, identity. And every church has a unique identity. Catch a Fire Church, you have a unique identity. I don't believe you're called to be a nice neighborhood church. You're called to be an apostolic resource center. You're called to be a people that shakes cities and nations by God equipping, raising up ordinary people. How many of you are at least somewhat ordinary, a little bit normal. I want to challenge us tonight to say, Lord, what is my vehicle? There's many other ways that God may move tonight in ministry, but the thing that was stirring in my heart during worship is God wants to help us begin to discover our vehicle. Because until we know our vehicle, then all we know to do is do what somebody else is doing. So, God, open our eyes to see. You know what? It could be, a, you know, those of you that, you know, wonder about things, airplanes, you know, jet airplanes, international ministry, school bus, educational ministry, 18-wheelers, you know, big trucks, resource ministry, whatever it might be, motorcycles, tattoos, piercings. <laughs> Wave it at you. Would you stand to your feet, please?